Last time we began the study of the Davidic covenant, and we saw last time the Davidic covenant is about kingship, rulership, or to say it differently, the Davidic covenant is about the right to rule. And we began our study of the right to rule back in the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, where we saw that God created humanity with that very purpose, to rule, to rule his creation as his image bearers in intimacy with him. Genesis 1.26, we saw last time, says that, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see, the earth doesn't rule us. We rule the earth. We don't worship the earth. We worship the maker of the earth. It's an it's a important distinction in the time in which we live. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God didn't create humanity to rule the way the world does, in lust and in pride and in selfishness. God created humanity to rule the way God intended, in humility and in righteousness and holiness, in other words, in God's image. God gave humanity the right to rule, and Adam was the head. He even had authority over his equal, the woman. You see male headship all over Genesis chapter 2. The man names the woman. That doesn't mean, and, and, and that shows headship. That doesn't mean that the man is superior to the woman, the man who thinks that is a fool. It means that God is a God of order and God established in the original creation. This is before the fall. In the original creation, God established authority and order. And so, in the same way that God, submits, God the Son submits to his equal, God the Father, you see a woman submitting to her equal in God's design. In the very beginning in Genesis 2, a woman submitting to her man. But humanity's right to rule is derivative. Let me say that again. Humanity's right to rule is derivative. It is sourced in God's right to rule. And God's right to rule is one of the most important principles. It's one of the most important doctrines that you find in the Scripture. It runs through the entire Bible, and it gives context and color to the Davidic covenant, the covenant that is about rulership, that is about kingship. So before we get too deep into the Davidic covenant, I want to take time today to study God's right to rule. Because we would be remiss if we went through the Davidic covenant and we didn't fully understand and fully examine God's right to rule. We live in a world that says that you're number one. You're the boss. You're the boss of you. And of course, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The scripture is crystal clear that there is but one boss, and that is God Almighty. And that principle runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. 
from the first chapter to the last chapter of the book. God's essence is what gives him the right to rule. This morning, we're going to consider three elements of God's essence, three elements of God's character, his sovereignty, his eternality, and his omnipresence. All of his attributes support his right to rule. But this morning, we have time to study only three. Element number one, attribute number one, sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign, which is to say he has absolute authority and he is in absolute control. Sometimes we don't understand this. Sometimes we don't understand what God is doing and why he is doing it, like why he allows evil to, what seems to me, to run rampant. But just because I don't understand what God is doing or why he is doing, why he is doing what he is doing doesn't mean that he's not God. It doesn't mean that he's not sovereign. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have complete control and he doesn't have complete authority. He has both of those. His sovereignty extends over every realm. The psalmist says it so clearly in Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the depths. His sovereignty extends even into the realm of evil itself. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for his, his. Let me say that again. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. He's made the wicked, is what the proverb says. It's not that God is responsible for wickedness or evil. I don't mean to suggest that in the slightest. It's that he is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the good. He's sovereign over the evil. He's sovereign over the elect angels. He's sovereign over the fallen angels. He's sovereign over the evil one. He's sovereign over godly people. He's sovereign over ungodly people. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over evil, and he makes the one who turns out to be evil, and yet he has no infection in evil. He's not infected by the evil. He doesn't cause the evil, and he is fully holy and fully righteous, and yet he is sovereign, meaning he is in complete control, and he is the absolute authority. This is a God who we must approach in awe and wonder, how he is sovereign over everything, even over wickedness, and yet in no way is his holiness or righteousness compromised. One of the great declarations of God's sovereignty is found in Daniel chapter 4. Please turn there in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 4. In this passage, we're going to observe the most powerful man in the world, at least in the known world at that time. This man has everything. This is a king. He has it all. We see in Daniel chapter 4 a king who has wealth and prosperity and power and prestige. And his success makes him arrogant. It makes him conceited and prideful. I'm talking about the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered many, many kingdoms, including the kingdom of Israel. He thought that he was king of the world. And God sent his prophet Daniel to tell the king that he was wrong. God sends his prophet Daniel to warn the king that very soon God is going to give the king an entirely new perspective. Daniel tells the king that he needs to recognize God's right to rule or to use the language 
from verse 26 of chapter 4, that he needs to recognize that it is heaven that rules. That's what verse 26 says. The king will refuse, and so God will give the king a new perspective. Look at verse 30. From the roof of the king's palace, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar overlooks his kingdom, and he says this in verse 30 of chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time, that's seven years, will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, now we have a writer of Scripture who was a Babylonian king. King Nebuchadnezzar writes Scripture that is recorded here in chapter 4. Look at it. But at the end of that period, now Daniel is writing it, of course, but he's memorializing the king's words. If I should be specific about that. At the end of that period, verse 34 says, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me because he had been mad. Mad. Crazy. Living in the field Like an animal, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Can I summarize? God brooks no rivals. God tolerates no rivals. And the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar's words explain the principle that is in the scripture, which is that God humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. Or to quote the book of James, God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That Greek word for opposed is a warfare word. It is a word of combat. God is in combat, is at war with the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Do you understand what God did to the mighty Nebuchadnezzar? He messed with his mind. He messed with his head. Because your health, your physical health, your mental health are subject to the God who is. He has 
absolute control. He has control over your heart, whether it goes boom, boom, boom. And he has control of your psyche. Now, we have free will. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ignoring free will. We have the ability to choose. But at some point, God exercises complete control. And in the end, he is sovereign. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man, they both coexist. But make no mistake, God is absolutely the boss in complete control and with absolute sovereignty. He alone has the right to rule and he delegates that, that right to whom he wishes, when he wishes, and how he wishes. But make no mistake, it is God's right, the right to rule. The second element, the second attribute of God's essence that we'll study this morning is eternality. Eternality, it is the divine attribute, one of the divine attributes from which God has and derives his right to rule. Charles Ryrie defines eternality or eternity this way. Quote, the attribute of eternity means that God exists endlessly. His existence extends endlessly backward and forward from our viewpoint of time without any interruption or limitation caused by succession of events. Putting these ideas together, Ryrie then quotes Louis Burkhoff. Louis Burkhoff defines eternity as that perfection of God, whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments, and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. Close quote. God's eternality is related to his sovereignty. Because if there was one before God, if there was one who existed before God, then he's not sovereign. Because that one would be preeminent. If God had a predecessor, or if God has a successor, then he's not sovereign. His eternality, his foreverness, his from Everlasting to everlasting is part of what establishes his sovereignty because there is no other. There's no one who pre-existed him because if there would, if there would have been, then that one would be preeminent. But it is the one who is named the everlasting God, the Olam Elohim in the Hebrew, the one who is from forever. It is that one who has absolute authority and sovereignty, and it is that one who has the right to rule. The psalmist says it so well in Psalm 90. Please turn to Psalm 90. The scripture uses deep, immeasurable words to describe God's foreverness, God's eternality. Psalm 90 is an ancient psalm. It's the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Moses. Psalm 90 Verse 1 reads like this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses says right up front, God is the place of refuge. When Moses talks about a dwelling, he's not, he doesn't mean some 10,000 square foot house where you got, you know, all these majestic and and. and, and and elegant areas. When he, when he speaks of a dwelling place here, he's meaning it in its most basic sense, a place of refuge, refuge 
from the elements, refuge from the, 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 the harsh sun of the Middle East, refuge from the cold in the evening in that part of the world, refuge. And he says that God is the place of, refu of refuge for all generations, for the believers of each and every generation, and that is because God is eternal. If he wasn't eternal, then he'd be the place of refuge for that generation and that generation, but maybe not for that one. And maybe not for the one way, way, way back. But because he is eternal, he is the place of refuge of all generations. Look at his eternality in verse 2. Moses says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from olam to olam, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But actually in the Hebrew, the R is not there. In the Hebrew, the, the word R is not found. It reads literally from everlasting to everlasting, you, God. Before the angels, God. Before the earth, God. Before humans, God. Before this universe, God. And after this universe, when he destroys it and creates a new one, God. There is no R here in the text. It's, it's a way of emphasizing from, from everlasting to everlasting, you, God. Moses uses these deep, immeasurable words to describe the eternality of God. Revelation 21, verse 1, the Apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Verse 5, And he, the he there is the Father who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Generations come and generations go, but he remains. And don't forget that Jesus claims the same title for himself, right? In Revelation 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the Pantocrator, the Almighty One. Jesus claims the, the title of Alpha and Omega, and the Father claims the title of Alpha and Omega. Which is it? Yes, is the answer. Is it one or is it both? Each member of the Trinity is the Alpha and the Omega, which is to say the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, the beginning which was really not a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, a beginning which is really not a beginning. The beginning in Genesis, in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John chapter 1, verse 2, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There we see this description of the Word, the Lagos, which is Jesus, being in the beginning before the beginning of creation, which is to say before the beginning that is described in Genesis 1.1. It's back then. Something that our finite brains do not comprehend. It's eternity, but back then eternity. Eternity of eternity past Keep reading in Psalm 90, verse 3. You may turn back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. In His sovereignty, God brings an end to our finite lives. In His sovereignty, God brings an end to our finite lives. And He appoints the time and the place 
of each of our deaths. Remember Genesis 3.19. This is part of the curse. Genesis 3 is the first sin. It's the rebellion. And then there's the punishment from God. Genesis 3.19. God says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and dust you shall return. To dust you shall return. We die. He does not. We pass away. And he is timeless. He remains from generation to generation. Keep reading in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Because God is eternal, a thousand years is like nothing. It's like a blip. Remember what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It's not that... Eternity has no time. No, there is a sequence of events. It's not that heaven has no time. Heaven does have time. There is a sequence of events. But with God, because He is from everlasting to everlasting, because He is eternal, there's not much difference between a thousand years and a four-hour segment of a night, the watch of a night. Or there's not much difference between a thousand years and a day. It's kind of like Elon Musk, right? Who's got, depending on, on when, you know, whether he spends a few dozen billion dollars to buy this company or that company, depending where he is in his, in his wealth, is it 160 billion? Is it 180 billion? Whatever, right? It's like Elon Musk. There's not much difference to him between $250 and $2,500 and $250,000 because he's got... 150 billion, or whatever his number is now. For God, he's got time ad infinitum. So a day, a thousand years, there's not much difference there. This isn't saying that there's no time in heaven. There is time. There's a sequence of events. But with respect to the one who is eternal, there's not much difference between a day, a month, a year, a thousand years. The point is God is eternal, so his right to rule is eternal. It's timeless in every era because he is timeless. It's not limited to a particular time period or a particular generation. There never was a time when God did not have the right to rule. He didn't obtain it at creation. We think of creation because that's, you know, we came into existence, whatever, you know, 15 years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, and we're connected to creation. So we think of God in terms of creation, but his right to rule existed before he created anything, before he created angels or before he created the universe. It existed since eternity passed. Then we see the third attribute of God, which produces his right to rule, the third attribute that we're studying this morning, and it's the attribute of omnipresence. He is present everywhere at all times in all places. David says this so elegantly in Psalm 139. Please turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 139, verse 7. Here David says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
Behold, you are there. This is what's called a merism in the Hebrew. It's a figure of speech. In, it's a figure of speech that, that uses two opposites. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The opposites. Everything way up there and everything down here. And everything in between. It's a merism. David is using a merism here. I can go as high as possible. I can go as low as possible. You're there. You're there in those two extremes, and you're there everywhere in between. This is a frightening reality. It should be for the enemy of God and a wonderful, beautiful comfort for the child of God. Keep reading in verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn, David says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, this is a poetic way to describe east and west, the traveling of light. The sun dawns in the east. That's why he refers to the dawn. And for the Israelite, the sea is the west. That's where Israel is located. And so the sun sets in the west. Keep reading in verse 10. Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. David is saying, there is no place that is too east, that is too west, that is too high, that is too low, that is too light, that is too dark for you, God. Because you're everywhere at one point in time, at all points in time. The point that we're seeing here is that God is omnipresent. So his right to rule is universal. It's not limited to a particular nation or a particular region. It extends to every aspect of the universe, to the smallest, minutest molecule of planet Earth and to the farthest galaxy in the universe. God's right to rule is absolute, eternal, and universal. So when Satan rebelled against God, it was an attack against God's right to rule. It was an attack against the very essence of God when Satan rebelled against the Almighty. In his pride, Satan thought, I can dethrone God and put myself on the throne in his place. I mean, talk about temerity and insolence and brazenness. I can remove God from his throne on the universe and I will sit there, is what the devil said. This is what is laid out in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 14. Please turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 14. The context of that passage is that through Isaiah, through the prophet, God is condemning a king, a king of Babylon. We don't know which king it was, but we know that it was a very prideful, arrogant king. And as God condemns this human king, he shifts. The language shifts to another who transcends this human king. It's as if God is saying, I know the pattern of your arrogance, king of Babylon. I've seen it before in the one whom you follow. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, reads like this. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. This phrase here, star of the morning, in the Hebrew is helel. 
Helel. And when the when they translated the Bible, this Hebrew text into Latin, it's called the Vulgate. When they translated the Bible, when they wrote the Vulgate in 400 AD, they translated this word, Helel, as Lucifer. Lucifer. Lucifer's words are recorded in the next two verses. Verse 13, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the essence of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. God created Lucifer full of righteousness. Righteous. A a, a created angel. But at some point in eternity past, Lucifer became unrighteous and prideful. And he declares these five arrogant I wills. His arrogance produced rebellion. It even produced violence in the courts of heaven. I mean, think of it. Angelic violence in the eternal abode of God, in the third heaven. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 is similar to Isaiah chapter 14. The context in Ezekiel is a human king, but this is not the king of Babylon. It's the king of Tyre. And there God condemns this king. And in the process, he shifts While he's condemning the king of Tyre, he shifts to speak of an angelic being who is behind the king of Tyre, an angel who is motivating the king of Tyre, an angel of incredible beauty with magnificent wisdom and power and privilege. Look at Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Verse 12 says this, God says to, to, to the prophet, he calls him son of man. That's not son of man in all caps or, or, or in initial caps with the first letter capitalized. That's not the messianic title from Daniel 7 for Jesus, for Messiah. This is, this is a title that God uses, lowercase, for the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. Guess what? Those are incredible jewels, beautiful jewels. And you find those jewels, every single one of those jewels, on the breastplate of the high priest. In Exodus chapter 28, you find every one of those jewels on the breastplate of the high priest. As established by God, the high priest of Israel. And so what I think we're seeing here is that this incredible, beautiful, magnificent, powerful, wise angel had a priestly function, had a priestly Responsibility had a priestly role, perhaps even a high priestly role in heaven. What does a priest do? A priest serves as a mediator between God and someone else. And so it may be that this incredible angel served as a mediator between God and the other angels. Keep reading 
in verse 13, after this description of these incredible jewels and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Created. So we know we can't be talking about a human king anymore. We're not talking about the king of Tyre anymore because he's not created. Only two humans were created by God, Adam and Eve. The rest were born from their mamas, like the king of Tyre. But this being that is described with these, this incredible beauty and this incredible privilege is a being that came directly from the end of God, created. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now we know for certain this cannot be a human king, the human king of Tyre. The word cherub refers to an angel. The Hebrew word for covers has the idea of someone who guards. That's what the cherubs do. Right? That's why when God gave the order to the Israelites to make the Ark of the Covenant, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, it had two seraphs at the top, right? No. It had two ordinary angels at the top, right? No. It had two cherubs at the top of the Ark. Gold cherubs. And on the, on the very top, or, the, or the, the, the seat of the ark. Remember, ark in the Hebrew, is, it, it just means a box. But this is a box used in, in worship. And so the seat, called the mercy seat, where the Shekinah dwelt, it's to be representative of the throne in heaven. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Holy of Holies is a facsimile, a facsimile of the throne room in heaven. In heaven. And so the Ark of the Covenant is a facsimile of the throne of God in the third heaven. The mercy seat is a facsimile of God's throne. How that works in heaven, because God is spirit, I don't know. It's similar to the vision in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God in his temple, which is also the throne room in heaven, because in heaven all authority is merged. Political authority religious authority, they're all merged because ultimately all authority comes from the one who is sovereign. When Christ returns, all authority will be in him. Political authority, religious authority. When I use the word religion, I, I use it carefully. Religion, think of religion as worship. There's false religion, phony worship, worshiping anything other than the true living God, and then there's true religion. Right? The phrase true religion is used in the New Testament. That just means true worship, worshiping the true holy God. And so what we're seeing here is a cherub. The cherubs guard, guarded the presence of God. That's why God had the Israelites build the Ark of the Covenant as a facsimile of his, of his throne in heaven with cherubs guarding the, pres- the, guarding the mercy seat where the Shekinah glory the Shekinah being that word that, that, that means that which dwells, where the Shekinah glory, in effect, sat, even though the Shekinah was not physical, a physical presence, in the sense of a, a human. Right? When the Shekinah came as a man, now the Shekinah sits, because the Shekinah indwells a man. God became a man. The special presence of God, the Shekinah, came born 
of a virgin in the New Testament. So what's happening here is in Ezekiel 28, we're getting this description of an angel with incredible power, with incredible beauty, who is not an ordinary angel, but is the, uh, of the highest order of angels. Because the cherubs are higher than all the other angels. They're hi- higher than the seraphs, the seraphim, who are only mentioned in Isaiah 6. They're higher than the rank-and-file angels. They are the top echelon, the elite of all the angels that were created by God. That is the order of this particular angel. This is no ordinary angel. This is no ordinary cherub. This is the anointed cherub, is what the text says. The word for anointed is the Hebrew word mimshah. Mimshah. When we saw this last time a few months back, I said the wrong word. It's not mashiach. It's mimshah. Now, both those words, both those Hebrew words are translated anointed in our English Bibles, and they're both related to the verb mashah, which is to anoint, to spear, to smear. It's the same result, but different words. The point here is that this is no ordinary cherub. He was the one to whom God gave incredible wisdom, beauty, and authority, such that this cherub is above all, or was above all the other cherubs. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way. According to verse 14, Ezekiel 28, 14, at some point in eternity past, God took this particular cherub and anointed or messiahed him so that he was now over those of his own cherubic order. With this event, there is a being who is the highest of all created beings, not only in wisdom and beauty, but also in power and authority. Close quote. Keep reading in verse 14. God says, And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Lucifer guarded the very presence of God in the third heaven, is what we're seeing here. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Again, created, not born. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. We know from Isaiah chapter 14 that the unrighteousness that was found in Lucifer was his pride, his five arrogant I wills. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. This angel, the angel, the anointed cherub who guarded the presence of God, was so amazed by his splendor and his beauty He loved his splendor and beauty so much that he became conceited. He didn't love the God who made his splendor and beauty. He looked at himself and he said, Wow, I am something else. As opposed to looking at God and looking at him and say, Wow, God, you made this. But instead, he looked at himself and he became conceited with what God had made in him. Beautiful, more beautiful than all the others. Wise, more wise than all the others. Powerful, 
more powerful than all the others. And in his pride, he became arrogant, not just arrogant, but that sin of arrogance led to violence. That's why you see in verse 16, he was internally filled with violence. His heart was full of violence. Apparently, he used violence in his rebellion to try and take the throne of God. He tried to seize the throne of God in the third heaven, in the abode of God, through force. Think of this. Warfare in the heavenly courts of God. Combat between angelic forces in heaven. He wanted to be like the Most High, answerable to no one, to be the only one entitled to glory. So he attempted to usurp God's throne. He tried to seize God's right to rule. Satan's rebellion challenged the very authority of God. Satan's rebellion challenged the essence of God. It challenged his sovereignty. It challenged his eternality. It challenged who he was, who he is, his omnipresence. All of the characteristics of God, Satan's rebellion challenged Because it raised the question that until that time had been unthinkable. Does God have the right to rule? Does he really have the ability to rule? I mean, look, we just had a rebellion in the perfect abode of God. An angel, the highest of all angels, engaged in warfare against God. And in fact, a third of the angels agreed with him and joined his rebellion. Does he really have the right to rule? I mean, is he able to rule? This is the question that until that time was utterly unthinkable in the angelic realm. Lucifer claimed that he had the right to rule, and a third of the angels agreed and followed him. So God immediately, immediately displays his right to rule, and he judges him. He judges him to eternity in the lake of fire. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, that the eternal fire, that's the phrase he used, the eternal fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. I take that to mean that it was prepared at the time of the judgment. God immediately shows his right to rule by judging them and apparently creating their place of judgment, the eternal fire. But then he does something that is surprising. It's surprising to me. I assume it was surprising to the angels. He delays the judgment. And instead of casting them into the lake of fire immediately, he does something that is unexpected. God is always full of surprises. Instead of casting them into the lake of fire and, and executing the judgment immediately, he creates a new creature, humans. And a new realm, the earth. And he gives a purpose to the new creature that he had never given to any angels. Not even to the highest of all the angels, Lucifer. He creates a purpose in this new creature to rule in his image. Because he makes the new creature in his image. A phrase that is never described of any other created being. Not even the angels, not even the anointed cherub. No creature is made in the image of God but you and me. 
So he delays the execution of the judgment, and during the delay, the delay, he creates a new creature, a creature that is made in his image, and he gives to the creature the right to rule this new realm, planet Earth. And he allows the war to rage on, though its end is certain. Its end is predetermined by the one who knows the beginning and the end. Its end, the end of the war, has already been established because the eternal fire has already been created and the sentence has already been issued. But God allows the war to rage on to display who He is, to display His glory. I assume that these are characteristics that the angels didn't fully understand in eternity past. And so in this world where God creates a new creature made in His image to display His glory, He displays to the angelic realm things that they didn't know before. He displays to the angelic realm things about, for example, His humility. His humility. God is humble. And so with this new creature, God will come and fellowship with this new creature in the garden. When the new creature rebels against God, God will come as the new creature. The eternal one as a man. Fully God, fully man. To suffer like that creature suffers. And then to conquer and to rule the way God designed the creature to rule. And actually to judge the enemy of God, the evil one. Because this man, capital M, will receive all authority. All authority in the heavens and on the earth. All authority. And so in the end, when the devil is cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, it is Jesus, because God has given all judgment to Jesus, it is Jesus who will execute the judgment against the ultimate enemy of God, the one who attacked God and attacked his angels in eternity past, the one who had the temerity to think that he could dethrone the one who was sovereign, the one who had the brazenness to do that. God says, I'm going to show you my majesty. You thought I wasn't sovereign? I'm going to show you my sovereignty. I'm going to show you my eternality. I'm going to show you my omnipresence. I'm going to show you my love. I'm going to show you my humility. I'm going to come as a creature lower than you, Lucifer. And that creature will bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel, but he will bruise you on the head. This is what is happening in this process of the unfolding of Scripture. The war rages on on planet Earth today with the end that is certain. What's happening in the war that is waged on planet Earth is that the question of the right to rule is being determined. Who has the right to rule? Is it Lucifer or is it God? That question is being determined here in the course of human events. Once God gave Adam and Eve the right to rule, as led by Adam, Lucifer set his sights on Adam. Understandable. Understandable, right? Lucifer hates God. 
Lucifer is going to hate the one who was created in God's image. Lucifer is going to go after the one who has the right to rule. Because Lucifer thinks he has the right to rule. He claimed the right to rule, and a third of the angels agreed with him. So God creates a new creature and gives the new creature a right to rule. Lucifer, understandably, in his evil, goes after the new creature. Lucifer got Adam to sin, and in that moment, God's image bearer betrayed him. In that moment, Adam betrayed God. Through his sin, Adam said to the devil, You know what? You're right. You have the right to rule. When Adam sinned, Adam testified, Devil, Lucifer, you have the right to rule. False testimony, but testimony nonetheless. And Adam handed over rulership. He handed over the right to rule. This realm, the new realm, the new creature handed rulership of the new realm to the old creature, to the enemy of God, to the evil one. He handed it over to the devil when he sinned. Notice, Paul does not say when Eve sinned, this was handed over. He doesn't say that. It's when Adam sinned, because Adam was the authority. Lucifer got Adam to sin, and when that happened, Adam handed over to the devil the right to rule the planet, even the right to rule humanity. You understand? The devil has the right to rule humanity today. Adam had the right to rule. He handed it over to the devil. Every human being is born, even conceived, in the kingdom of the devil, under his authority, in the kingdom of darkness. That's how we're born. And we remain under the authority of the devil, of the evil one, until we receive a new birth, a birth from a different realm. A birth from the realm of God. A birth, to use Jesus' language from John chapter 3, a nothen. You must be, he said to, to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born a nothen. Again, which means from above. A nothen can mean again or from above or both. And so until we are born from above, we remain subject to the authority of the king of this realm the ruler of this realm, who Jesus called, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. So what happens immediately, immediately, when, ha- when Adam hands rulership over the, to the devil, immediately God announces and promises in Genesis 3.15, another Adam, the seed of the woman. This seed of the woman is the coming king who is prophesied in the Davidic covenant. These things connect. The scripture is interrelated. It's not just a bunch of dudes who wrote, who wrote different books, right? The way the university professor says, oh, there's just a bunch of guys who just wrote different books, and they just, that, that, I'm going to write this because, you know, this is what I'm thinking right now, and I'm going to write this in Genesis, and then I'm going to write this Isaiah, and then I'm going to write this Luke. No, there's one author. There's one author for the 66 books of the Bible capital A, God the Holy Spirit. And he moves human writers, 
who are fallen, broken sinners. He moves them in a fashion that restrains their sin. They record the infallible words of God, and the story is the same from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It is the same story. God's creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. That's the theme of all these different writers written over a period of 1,500 years. Forty writers, roughly, on three separate continents. Africa, right? Jeremiah wrote when he was in, <clears throat> in Egypt. Asia, in the Middle East. Europe. Roughly 40 writers on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, with one constant theme. Creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. And so these things interconnect. The scripture is interwoven. The seed of the woman is the coming king who is prophesied in the the Abrahamic covenant. We traced that last time. We traced... The, the kingly line in the Abrahamic covenant, because remember, God promised to Abraham, kings would come from you. He said, from you and Sarah. Then he made the same promise to Isaac. Then he made the same promise to Jacob. And then he narrows the promise through Judah in Genesis 49, verse 10, that the king would come through Judah. This is the seed of the woman. This is the one who would rule, who would do that which the first Adam was supposed to do, but fouled up. The king is the one who would undo Adam's sin, the first Adam's sin, who would reclaim humanity for God, who would reclaim the planet for God, and once and for all would show that God and God alone has the right to rule. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of planet Earth. The war is not raged on Venus The war is not raged raged on Mars. It is on this planet that the war over the question of who has the right to rule is waged. This is the history of humanity, the history of planet Earth. Or to be more specific, this is his story. It's the story of God and God's right to rule. Father, we thank you for the privilege to be able to study your word, to consider it. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that you have memorialized it for us, and we ask that you transform us by it. We ask that you challenge us to worship you because of who you are and what you have revealed and what you are doing and what you will do. We pray these things in Jesus' name.